In the book of Daniel, which we have been taking a look at for quite a number of weeks now, he tells us a number of things. He gives us, through the word of the Lord, prophecy of things that will happen in the future as far as his future and our past. He also gives some very specific uh, prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah and gives an exact time frame for that Messiah to come. And, but he doesn't limit his prophecies to the Messiah. He's also been given revelation, if you will, about what I call the anti-Messiah, which most of us call the Antichrist. And it's the, it's the same differences. Messiah is more the Hebrew word, and Christ is more the Greek word. So Jesus Christ and Jesus Messiah, it means the same thing. And so he tells us of the anti-Messiah, which is good for us. But it's interesting how we believers, like most people, kind of focus on the positive and kind of ignore the difficulties. And so when we are witnessing to our friends or family or neighbors, we talk and, and, and the, the word is there, and, and I'm not saying it, it isn't accurate. We talk about the abundant life. And most people think of the abundant life as being, oh, you get all the good stuff and God gives you all the blessings and nothing ever bad happens to you. And if something bad happens to you, then God must be mad at you or you did something wrong. And, and we get all into that. And we, we think that God's main purpose for saying, let there be light was for me to be happy. And if I'm not happy, then there's something wrong. While it is true that God came to give us an abundant life, we have misdefined what abundant life is. And if you take a look at the scriptures, the reality of the scriptures are, if you're a believer, it's going to be rough. Because you're going to live in a world that has a different worldview than you do. You're going to believe that God created all of this and the rest of the world is going to say you're simpleton that, you know, science is far above and, and God was just a God of the gaps. If you didn't know what was going on, then God did it. And if you do, then God didn't. And God's unnecessary. But the world is also one of power. And so everybody wants to be in charge. And so you've got those who want to be kings and presidents and prime ministers and want to rule. And by the nature of, of humans, uh, we love power. And as it was once said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But we don't listen to that. We just want power. And you can see as the world leaders seek power, they seek to overcome other nations and subjugate them and their people. Daniel is going to tell, has told us about the various kingdoms coming 
in his future, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and he goes through the list um, of, of future kingdoms. And last week, we took a look at, at some of the prophecy, and it went through a real quick uh, discussion of the remaining Medo-Persian Empire, and then how Alexander the Great would come quickly conquering, and then his kingdom would be divided into four. And then the prophecy kind of was emphasized on the kings of the north, which was north of Israel, and the kings of the south, which is south of Israel. So the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies, and how they kept going back and forth, warring with each other, and that impacted Israel because they would go through Israel to war with each other. And then he comes in chapter 11 to verse 36. And he's going to talk about another dictator, if you will, another ruler. And if you're, if you're not careful, you're going to think, oh, well, he's still talking about the last dictator he just talked about, which was Antiochus IV. But what is going to be discussed of this dictator does not happen to Antiochus, so therefore it can't be speaking to him. So the kind of the best way that I can kind of give you a, an understanding is if you're looking off in a distance and you see a mountain range and you see a, a mountain peak and a mountain peak, oftentimes because of the distance, it looks like they're very close. But once you get to the one mountain peak, all of a sudden you discover there's a valley. So there's this two mountain peak, Antiochus, and then what is going to be discussed in verse 36 on. Some of the attributes of Antiochus will have of this anti-Messiah, but there will be some additional things, so we'll take a look. Verse 36 says this, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the God of the gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. So this new dictator, this anti-Messiah, first will be one who seeks his own praise and magnification and glory. But he's not satisfied with just seeking his own magnification. He then speaks contemptible, blasphemous things about God. So it's not, well, worship me, it's worship me, but the God of gods, he says things that you and I probably can't even imagine. But he's going to prosper, which again is a sign for us to remember. So often we think, well, when somebody prospers, they must be doing well. And so if a church is doing well, well, it must be preaching the word or not. Circumstances don't necessarily dictate what the faithfulness of the people are. And so just as we need to, to stop and say, the results doesn't determine whether they are faithful. It's are they faithful? His prosperity does not depend on the fact that he's doing well. As a matter of fact, he's pretty egomaniac. So he seeks his own 
magnification, and he speaks monstrous things against God. But he will prosper until, but the clue is until he's finished. So we're given a clue right up in front. This isn't going to last forever. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. So we are given a clue that he does come from some kind of religious background. That religious background may be Jewish, Christian, um, Muslim, Sikh. It may, it may come from, but he's going to have a religious background, but he is not going to follow the background of his fathers. He's going to seek, in essence, his own magnification. And so he's going to glory. He's not going to say, well, though, the gods of my fathers don't exist. He's just going to say, I'm better than they are. So he, he will magnify himself and he will have no regard for the other gods. And then it says for the desire of women. And some people think that means something sexual. And other people says that, for instance, when Jesus was going, to, was prophesied, it was the desire of women to, to be that one who would bear the Messiah. And it's like, well, I don't care about that. It's all about me. So um, I'm not smart enough when we've, when he gets here, we'll figure it out together. Verse 38, but instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold and silver, costly stones and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and he will parcel out land for a price. And so he not only is it successful, he's powerful. So much so that he's a, he has things to parse out. So you can't give land if you don't own land. So he has been very successful in his triumph and his, his seizing. And since he seems to be um, one who is uh, following the God of fortresses, the God of war, if you will, uh, he's probably going to be taking these by military action. But those who side with him will prosper. And those who don't, won't. And in this, he will give glory and honor and, and tribute to this God that helps him acquire what he does. And so instead of seeking the God who his fathers worship, his fathers don't even know this God that he will seek. Then it says this. And at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost part of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures 
of gold and silver and over the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal... Well, I'll stop there. So he... In his seeking of greater and greater power and control, he all of a sudden it says the king of the south, which is probably Egypt, and it says the king of the north. In this case, it may be the Syrians and those, or it could be further north, the Russians or whatever, but someplace north of Israel. They will all of a sudden say, well, wait a minute, this guy's getting too much power, too much control, and so they decide that they're going to war against him, but they're not successful. And not only that, he is able to conquer other countries in this battle. But there are rumors from the east and from the north. So probably further north and the east may be China or whatever. These countries will say, well, wait a minute. That's kind of enough. And so there's going to be this assembling of nations against him. And he is going to, in essence, occupy Israel. Getting ready for this battle. That's where it says he pitches his tents in the beautiful land and that Israel. But it says that there is these countries of Eden and Ammon and the sons of Ammon and Moab that will escape. Well, there are no countries like that at present. So if you look on a book of maps in your Bible, and you look at where these people occupied, pretty much is where present-day Jordan is. And so for some reason, God gives these this, these countries, and now maybe this country, protection. Well, I think it's not just out of whim. Who's Edom? Edom is the brother of Jacob, Esau, and his people. Moab was the firstborn of Lot after the death of his wife and his wife's husband. And Ammon was the second born. So it was the cousins. And so in essence, God is going to protect these lands, but there's a reason, I believe, and we're not told in Daniel, Jesus gives us a clue. And so, he says that he will pitch his tent, and he'll be ready for this battle. And he will pitch his tents of the royal pavilion between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. So somewhere between the Mediterranean and Mount Zion, he will be prepared. And he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now, when we read this, we think, well, that's because he's so powerful and so whatever that perhaps no one cares and just doesn't come to assist. Or, God is so powerful that no help will help. 
And so this gives us a little clue as to what the anti-Messiah is going to be. And as we read this, we go, oh, that's interesting. Until we come to the first verse of the next chapter, chapter 12, which is a little disturbing. It says, verse 1, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, over Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And that, that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be saved, will be rescued. Now the, the words that are distressing to me are these. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And you don't have to be a very careful student of history to know that history is marked with the suffering of people. And you don't have to be a great Bible scholar to see how much the people of God suffer. And even outside, and so these things that we know as history that most of us don't ever talk about is, is like the reign of Antiochus, Antiochus who, who killed about, about 40,000 Jews uh, sent them into slavery and did all these other things and how he tried to wipe out the practices of God's worship and to install his own gods of Zeus and whatever. And then we think of the 20th century, the sufferings caused by people like Hitler and Pol Pot and Mao Zedong, and Stalin, and all these millions of people who suffered and died, both for religious reasons and for anti-religion. You'll hear people talk about, well, more people died because of religion. That's a lie. Just in the 20th century, more people died because of atheism than religion. But people have suffered, and the God's people, the Jews have suffered. Look at the death camps and the, and the Holocaust. And you go, and this is going to be worse? Because it says that no time is going to be more distressing than this time. So it's no wonder Daniel, when he received these visions, was shaken to his core. Now, Jesus understood that this was a time before, after his coming. You see, this doesn't talk about Antiochus, doesn't talk about history. In Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse, uh, I'm going to start with verse 15. I know we've got 29 listed here. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. He's saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, which means not the one that Antiochus did, as he did one, as Jesus says, there's another one coming that's worse. He's going, don't hang around take off. And some of the advice given in other scriptures is 
go to, in essence, Jordan. Go to the mountain. And whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out of that that are in the house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. He's saying, this situation is going to be so terrible. You don't have time. Get out of Dodge or get out of Jerusalem. Flee. But then he says, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing with babies in those days. Why? Because let's face it, children slow you down. They're tired. They're weak. You got to carry them. And he's saying, this is not something to take lightly, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Now, the previous pastor spent a month in, in um, Israel. And one of the things that he told about that, that that sticks in my memory, he goes, on the Sabbath, if you're in a high-rise building, like if you're in a hotel or something, it was considered work to push a button. And so if you're in like a 32-story building, you have to stop at every single floor going up and every single floor going down. So if you're trying to get out of Dodge really quick, it's going to be really stressful to be on the 32nd floor and have to stop 32 times before you get to the bottom. So when Jesus says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath, he knew exactly what he was talking about. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Jesus reconfirms this terrible tribulation that will come in these times. And he's saying it's worse. It's worse than we have ever, ever known. Unless those dates had been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus saying, if I let things happen, everyone would be destroyed. But because of God's people, he ends this tribulation period. And then he gives us some advice and that we should follow. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ. Or there he is. Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. See, this is why I'm talking about these things. So many people say, well, when the tribulation comes, we're going to be out of here, so what does it matter? Well, apparently there's going to be some elect there. Because otherwise, he would just say, well, he'd mislead a bunch of people. The signs and wonders are going to be so spectacular that believers could be tempted to fall prey. So again, just because somebody does things that is miracles doesn't mean he's from God. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do, go no, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the sun coming of the Son of Man be. 
He's saying, it's not going to be a secret. When I come back, the whole world's going to see it. When Jesus came the first time, he was just in a little town called Bethlehem that nobody cared about. And it took a couple of years for some wise guys to show up to give him homage and presence. The world so cared so little about him, he was born in a stall, in a, in a stall, not, not even in a hotel room. So he goes, don't believe them. It's going to be obvious when I come. And then he says something that I used to think was really strange. Kind of like, huh? And he says this, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And you go, that's a really weird comment. Until I read a little more about the scriptures. And so I'm going to give you a little clue in just a moment what Jesus is saying. It's a very key clue. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. You see, there was a time when it looked like the anti-Messiah was the one who had it all power and fame and miracles. But he will be nothing in comparison and all the earth will mourn and he will send forth his angels and with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the one end of the sky to the other. Yes, it's going to be terrible. And yes, it's going to be so that even the elect could fall. But he wins. The Messiah. Not the anti-Messiah. His decree for his end has been set already. I shared with you a few weeks ago how I used to would record a football game and be very nervous as we watched it. Then I decided I didn't like being so nervous. I just kind of started watching the game from where it was. But I wouldn't be nearly so nervous if I knew the game was over and my team won. Because it didn't matter if he, the quarterback threw an interception. It didn't matter how many fumbles happened because my team won. There's no need to be nervous, folks, about our spirituality. There's no need to be nervous about our faith. No matter how far it may seem that the Messiah has power and great influence and can decide who lives and who dies, he loses. And it's not even a game. And then to show you that, I want you to go to Revelations chapter 19. Maybe. And starting with verse 11, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. And I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Notice, in righteousness, not in power, not in corruption, but in righteousness. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, means that he is a ruler. 
and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, which means they are the elect, they are the righteous ones coming from heaven. The anti-Messiah may have his army. The Messiah has the army of heaven. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. With just his speech, he destroys nations. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It may seem that the anti-Messiah can parcel out land, but the Messiah is ruler over everything. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Aha! This is what Jesus is talking about. Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. You see, there will be a battle. The anti-Messiah loses in a slaughter. So Jesus says, there's going to be a preparation for this. The vultures are going to assemble. It's a clue. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So what appears, and I'm, I'm not certain what appears, that these armies had assembled to fight the anti-Messiah. Only to see Jesus coming. And instead of joining forces with Jesus, join forces with the anti-Messiah. So with the anti-Messiah's forces and those who were opposed to him gathered together, still cannot defeat the army of God. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now I'm not a guy who likes violence per se. To a large extent, the army of the anti-Messiah deserved their destruction. But notice that Jesus comes with an army, but his army doesn't defeat the evil forces. Jesus You'll hear a lot of pastors talk about, well, God plus one makes a majority. No, God makes the majority. 
He doesn't need your help. You just get to be there. To say, boy, didn't we beat those guys? What do you mean weak? He must not, you know, it, but, but he allows us to be there. And notice that that's the same thing. The Spirit is one who brings people to repentance. But he allows us to testify. He allows us to be involved. But it is his work. It is his ministry. It is his Spirit that does these things. So, when you see the giants, they ain't nothing. When you see the people who are opposing you, they ain't nothing. Just a matter of saying, I've read this book. I've seen the end. My God wins. But until then, there will be pain and there will be suffering and people will be deceived and people will worship things that aren't and people will worship this anti-Messiah, and people will take his mark so that they might buy and sell and, and live life. And those who are God's people will suffer because they will not give in to this one. And again, so bad that everything that we think is horrific pales in comparison. And even when it is that bad, God is still in control. And God has set as far as he can do and no further. And then next week, we'll take a look at God has even determined how many days he gets to be successful. And just says, just hang on a few more days. So we're going to sing a song as a part of our time of reflection, it says, bring the rain. And primarily, the, it talks about, it's okay to receive suffering and difficulties because I'm still going to praise God for who he is. We may suffer because of illness and disease. And we may suffer Because of our faith. But in both of those, our desire should be, Lord, may you be glorified. God, I don't need to have an easy life. I want a life that glorifies you. And if we are destined to be in a time of this great tribulation, may be a time of great glory to our God. It's not about my comfort. It's not about my happiness. It's about his victory. About his glory. And I tell you what. When my team loses, I'm kind of down for a, until my team wins. So if they lose the last game of the season, it's kind of tough because you want your team to win. My team wins for eternity. It's awesome. I'm on the winning side, not because of what I can do, 
because of what he is and what he has done. So God, if we got to have some interceptions, if we got to have some fumbles, bring the rain. Because I know you will receive glory in it. And all God's people said,